This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am Kevin Randall. And we're going to do something a little differently here today. Um, I'm going to... Uh, be the guest. I'm going to chat about a number of things that I've uh, come across and things that have uh, bothered me and things that I think are important to understanding the UFO field in the last year or so, because uh, there's a lot going on in the field. But I did want to start off by thanking all of those who purchased any of my books, including uh, The Best of Project Blue Book, which is the most recent, uh, Encounter in the Desert, which is uh, the story of the Lonnie Zamora case, and of course, Rosalind in the 21st century. Those books um, hang around uh, on the Amazon bestseller list, popping up and down into the top 100 periodically. And I certainly appreciate those of you who have bought copies of those books and those of you who have rated or written reviews of them. That always helps. And I think that's a way, one of the ways we get the word out from our point of view is by looking at the books that are published. And, and I should qualify that by saying, you know, we've got to look at these books specifically and carefully, not just mine, but all books that are published to make sure the information is accurate and the information isn't based on supposition, based on fantasy, based on conjecture, but goes directly where the evidence leads us. And I think the evidence leads us in some uh, interesting directions based, again, on, on, a, on a perspective that you might hold. I, I look at that as a way of understanding these things. I have a specific perspective on it and other people have a different perspective. What I think is interesting is how you can uh, look at the same set of data and come to different conclusions based on, on that data because there's always some areas for interpretation. And that kind of moves us into this idea of disclosure. We talked about disclosure on this program. Stephen Bassett has been on to talk about disclosure. It's one of the driving forces in the UFO field, I guess, in today's environment, always talking about disclosure is disclosure close at hand. Now, back in, I think it was 2017, the Navy released those videos, those three short video clips, and it seemed that we were moving toward disclosure. I thought at the time, the Navy coming out and releasing that information and, and verifying that information was important because it suggested a change in the governmental attitudes toward UFOs and, and disclosure itself. But since then, you know, nothing, nothing has really changed. It all remains sort of stagnant. We haven't gone anywhere. Some of the things we thought were leading toward it have vanished. Uh, attitudes have changed. We did get another video or a couple of videos from the Navy and they released it by saying these are authentic videos, meaning not that they showed alien spacecraft, but they were videos that had been taken by Navy pilots, Navy crewmen, uh, of, of a pyramid-shaped object over their uh, ships on deployment or in, in the fleets. 
And I wanted to make that distinction that by suggesting the authenticity of those videos, they're not confirming their alien spacecraft, merely that they were videos that were made by, captured by, created by Navy personnel. And I've, I've often wondered about some of this. One of the things we have to look at here as we move a little bit away from disclosure, but, but it'll, it'll all become clear by the end of the program, I assure you. But as we move toward disclosure, we have to remember there was a Brookings Institute study done in the 1960s, and a very small portion of it dealt with UFOs. And I've mentioned this before in other venues, that one of the things they noticed that was that when a technologically superior civilization came in contact with a technologically inferior civilization, the technologically inferior civilization ceased to exist saying nothing about the society, nothing about whether the societies are good or bad or the technologies are good or bad, but just merely looking at a superior technology, meaning it is for it is uh, farther advanced than the inferior civilization. It's all about where they stand on the evolutionary scale. What they were saying was the mere introduction of the technology or the mere observation of the technology would uh, adversely affect that civilization. Um, and I, I mentioned on the program, I know Steve Bassett didn't understand what I was trying to say about a anthropologist who wanted to study a primitive tribe who had a very uh, ritualistic structure about using a stone axe. They had to go to the headmen of the village to borrow the stone axe. They had this very ritualistic system of getting the stone axe. It was kind of an, uh, one of the underpinnings of the society. And the anthropologist showed up and to induce the people to talk with him and tell him about what was going on, he provided them with steel axes. Well, a steel axe is a much, much better tool than a stone axe. So this undercut one of the underpinnings of the society. He didn't do it intentionally. The mere introduction of a steel axe changed the dynamic of that of that little tiny civilization there. And that's what we mean when we say the introduction of the technology would be, uh, could be leading to the destruction of the civilization. A steel pot is a better cooking vessel than a clay pot. But, but some of the societies, especially when we look at the uh, uh, Indians on the prairie, the Lakota and the Cheyenne, they had no technology to create a stone pot, they had to rely on the technology of the Europeans and the Americans coming in for that technology, and it altered their society. And the best example of this is prior to um, the 16th century, the 1500s, there wasn't a, uh, a horse in the New World. The Spanish introduced the horse, and that radically altered the civilizations as far north uh, Toward, toward Canada and the, and the Plains Indians. So we had to look at how that altered their civilizations, maybe for the better, maybe not, but it altered their civilizations. So we look at all of that sort of thing. So we wonder what would be the motivation for disclosure by those people in power? And I'll get into this in, later in the program, but there's really no motivation for them to disclose anything they know. They can keep, uh, by keeping the secret, they do not 
undermine their own power. The mere, the mere admission of alien visitation could alter the power structures of the society. So it's not an idea that if we announced that UFOs were alien spacecraft, the public would panic. And I've said for the longest time that we have dealt with this for my entire lifetime, and, and most of you listening your entire lifetime, you've known about flying saucers and UFOs. They've been in the movies. They've been on TV. They've been in documentaries. There's been all kinds of information about UFOs for our entire lives. And if you look at a, a show like um, Independence Day with the alien invasion of Earth, and you worry about alien invaders, you say, well, you know, they've been around the whole time I've been alive, and it really hasn't adversely affected our, my life. And I say adversely because I can point to some of the benefits of ufology in my life. If, if, if nothing else, I've had an opportunity to travel around the country at somebody else's expense uh, to do documentaries and things like that. So I've benefited from it in that way. Uh, my interest in UFOs. But that's the point. There really hasn't been an adverse uh, part of the whole UFO thing. It's always been somewhat uh, innocuous, somewhat beneficial, somewhat benign, I guess is a better term for it. So there's no, there's no um, worry about the panic simply because if they were going to invade, they would have invaded long ago. And we would be in the deep, deep woods at this point. The other thing I, I want to point out is in intelligence, you don't worry about what the other guy knows. And this will become clear in a moment. And I think I've mentioned this before. When I was an intelligence officer at Richard Gabauer Air Force Base in uh, Kansas City, I got a call from a reporter from one of the Kansas City newspapers. Something had broken on the news. I had read all about it in classified documents. And he called, the call was transferred to me. I don't know how it ended up in, in my office. Uh, as opposed to the public affairs office and that sort of thing. But it ended up in my office, and the guy wanted me to talk about this. And I was telling him, I don't know anything about it. And he was calling me all sorts of names and how I was a poor intelligence officer and all this. And I'm thinking, yes, I would be a very poor intelligence officer if I said that I knew about this, because I would be confirming the information he had, and then he would have a viable source. You know, an intelligence officer at Richard Schwauer Air Force Base said, blah, 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 confirming this story. So I just denied all knowledge. Didn't matter what he knew. Didn't matter in, 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 if you're working with an adversary. It doesn't matter what they know and what they can do. You operate from your point of view and what you want to say. Good example of this is President Eisenhower denying that we were flying U-2s over the Soviet Union after the Gary Powers had been shot down. And he went on national TV, he went in, called a press conference, went in front of the United Nations and all says, we're not doing that until the Russians trotted out Gary Powers and kind of undercut, well, our denial that we were spying on the Soviet Union. The point simply is you operate what is the best way for you to operate in that environment and don't worry about what the other guy might know or what he can do. You worry about what he does, when he does it, you continue with what you want to push forward in that, that arena. And it all relates back to disclosure is if the UFOs landed in a public place where the information couldn't be suppressed, where it was obvious everybody and his brother with a cell phone had it, uh, everybody with a GoPro camera and his sister had it, everybody has the, the footage, the news media is there, 
maybe the maybe the National Guard shows up, the police are there, everybody is there. We all know that it's happened. Um, then we we've lost control of the information because the the aliens have taken taken control and done what they wanted to do. But you don't worry about that. You don't worry about them landing because a they haven't done it yet. Made them made their presence known officially. They have tried to dodge that. They hide in the background for the most part and let us do our thing. So they're not doing anything to interrupt that flow of information. So in that environment, our government and governments of the world have no um, motivation for disclosure. I say, well, why doesn't somebody else announce it? Because the power structures are in all these countries and they all realize what would happen once they disclose it. And they've got to come out with some pretty powerful information before they disclose it as well, because we've, we've run through this before where somebody has said something um, many, many years ago, the UN ambassador from Grenada announced that UFOs were real. Well, it's a tiny Caribbean country and nobody really cared and he didn't present any evidence. It was his personal personal opinion. So you, you look at all of that sort of thing. The point simply here is we don't have um, a motivation for disclosure. It probably wouldn't lead to the destruction of a civilization as a conquest would, but it would certainly alter our society. And we've seen how one little minor thing can alter society throughout the entire world in the last year, year and a half. So we've had a good example of, of that sort of thing. So we, we need to keep that in mind. I don't think that there's disclosure coming about. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later on when we get into a, the segment about rewriting history. So I will come back with segment two here, talking about some of the people who've appeared on the program. And one of my gripes about what we uh, uh, see in that, if uh, you take a look at the X-Zone Broadcast Network at xzbn.net, scroll down there, you're going to find a list of uh, other programs, and you're going to find things that interest you. I know that not all of the programs interest me, but some of them I find fascinating. So I think that you need to take a look at that and scroll down there and see what uh, comes up that'll fancy or, or trip your trigger. I will be back right after this, and we will be talking about this. And you are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. So please stick around. I am back. I'm alone in my office, <laughs> not having to social distance from anybody because nobody's around. Uh, this segment, we do something a little different. I have um, invited many, many people on this program, and a few of them have said no. I suspect the reason some of them have said no is they were afraid of what I knew, meaning I'm a lot of hosts for shows aren't as well versed in the topic of UFOs as I am. I've been around for 50 years doing this stuff and been, been all kinds of places and talked to all kinds of people. Uh, I know practically or knew practically everybody in the UFO field. And I bring this up because I wanted to talk about a couple of guests that we've had in the past and the things that we've gone through. Uh, those of you who pay attention to the program know that not that long ago, I interviewed a fellow named Lawrence Spencer. 
and you go to my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, there's a embedded audio player there. And if you go to that, you can scroll down and you can listen to the program that I did with Lauren Spencer. Or you can, in the search engine, type, just type Lauren Spencer and there'll be a short um, review of that program in it and embedded in that will be a link to the, to the program as well. What caught my attention with Lauren Spencer was not that long ago, a few months ago, somebody sent me an email about this Lauren Spencer guy and the nurse that he supposedly interviewed, uh, had a correspondence with, who had been in Roswell in 1947 and tells this story of um, what she saw, what she did, and uh, her interactions with the aliens, because she was brought into it by Sheridan Cabot, he being the counterintelligence officer in Roswell in 1947. Uh, she was operating as his driver when they went out toward uh, what I think now is the, the impact site as opposed to the debris field, and where supposedly one of the aliens was alive and she made mental contact with it, mental telepathy. She was able to, to do this, and none of the other people around were. Uh, the book is online for free for those of you who want to, to read it, but it, it just smacked of a new age philosophy, I think, that sort of thing. But her story didn't make any sense to me as a military officer. I knew that Cavett, A, as a lowly captain, wouldn't have had a driver assigned to him, and B, as the counterintelligence officer, they would not have brought somebody into that office who did not have the proper security clearances. So you didn't, wouldn't have anybody running around in that office operating with them um, who did not have the proper security clearances. So if there was a driver involved in it, it would have been one of the men assigned to the office, one of the enlisted men, certainly not Bill Rickett. He was the, the NCOIC, the non-commissioned officer in charge, been one of the others. But other things that, that they she said, um, she said that uh, after her involvement, she was promoted to senior master sergeant. Well, that's not an army rank, that's an Air Force rank, and it didn't come about until the 1950s. She wasn't a nurse because all army nurses are officers. And so her story just didn't, didn't hang together. And we talked to Spencer quite a while about this, and I pointed out some of these discrepancies, and his fallback position was, well, you know, um, I just, I didn't, I talked to her for 20 minutes. She sent me this stuff and I published it. So it's really not me saying this. It's her saying this. I don't think the woman ever existed. I think he made the whole thing up and it was kind of annoying, but what we did, and I say we, and it's Rob McConnell who works, uh, well, <laughs> who's the main guy at the X zone broadcast network. I had sent him an invitation to take a lie detector test. I announced it on the air that asked him if he'd be willing to take a lie detector test. And he said, uh, of course, absolutely, take this. And I know within minutes, Rob had sent him the invitation and how it would be set up and who would pay for it and all of that stuff. And he never heard back. So I contacted him, oh, a week, 10 days ago to see what the status was. And I've never heard back from him either. Um, clearly he's not going to take a lie detector test because clearly he knows the truth and we know the truth and the, the, the nurse never existed. The woman never existed. He made this up and couched it in the, um, I was gonna say mythology of Roswell. I really shouldn't say it that way in the, in the drama of Roswell to, uh, get clicks, get people to take a look at his book and they buy this book or get this book for free and they might be inclined to get the rest of his books, which 
would lead to some income. And by God, I'm not going to complain about people making money on this because I've written books and I've written some of the books because I wanted to write them, not because I was going to make some money on it, but because I thought it was a story that I wanted to tell. And the fact that I was able to make some money based on that, I don't think should be held against me or be held against him because we're all in it to make money somewhere. Um, if you're a journalist at CBS, you're there to move up the corporate ladder and earn the big bucks. If you're a, uh, a police officer, you may be doing it because you want to serve the uh, public, but you're also doing it because you that's your living. That's how you make money. And the fact that you're doing something you love and you make money at it is, is kind of irrelevant. Uh, that's something we really shouldn't point to. But in the world today, it's all about clicks. And I think the reason for the book to exist, this book with Lauren Spencer, and I think her name was Matilda O'Connell McElvoy. Uh, and the way he, because he gave it away free, I think it was to induce people to take a look at his other books. And uh, in that case, they would have to sign on to um, his website and, and uh, there would be a monetary um, benefit for that. One of the other guys we had on was Christopher Montgomery, and I had him on because in his book and on, on the um, main show on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Rob McConnell's show, he was saying that I was a shill for the Air Force, that um, I was clearly in the Air Force's pocket, and the things that I had said about UFOs were red herrings and not to believe what I had said about all this. So I invited him on the show to talk about that. And... Uh, he was unable to provide sources or wouldn't provide sources. I said, I, sh I should know if I'm a show for the Air Force, and I'm not. Um, would he admit that I'm not a show for the Air Force? He wouldn't even do that. And it, the, the program devolved into me asking a question and him saying no comment. What I wanted were the sources. Where did you get this information that I was some kind of a agent for the Air Force? And that was my whole motivation. And he would not answer those questions. So I think that uh, you know he eventually got angry and hung up. We contacted him after the program, and his excuse was that his, his phone had gone dead or there was some kind of problem at his end, but the information is that he hung up on us. I invited him back. I said, well, we didn't finish our conversation. Come on back. His answer to me was, okay, but I want to make a statement, and I want to know what you're going to ask me about. And I thought, yeah, right, that's going to happen. I told him, no, you're not going to make a statement. And uh, I sent him like 50 different topics we could talk about. So he couldn't couldn't possibly prepare for them all. But if he was well-versed in the, in the field of ufology, he would have known these things. It wouldn't have been a big deal. One of the things that, that um, kind of annoyed me about him, and one of my gripes about this, is that they don't have a good grasp on the topics. One of the things that, that Montgomery and I discussed was Maury Island, and I was astonished that he hadn't done more research into this. Maury Island I, is a hoax. I think it's clearly a hoax. And if you delve beyond the surface, you come to that conclusion based on all the evidence. The Internet is a wonderful research tool. You can find anything on the Internet. I uh, was reading a book called The Son of Morningstar, it's about the Custer and the Battle of the Greasy Grass. I say it that way for, uh, I guess, benefit of the Lakota. They, they called it the Battle of the Greasy Grass. It's, of course, Custer's last stand. In McConnell's book, he's talking about the five companies that go into Custer to the last stand. The, the other seven companies are with Reno and Benteen, and they're out of the picture. There's five companies with him, C, E, F, L, and I. And I do not know why I remember that. I just remember those companies for some reason. And... 
what happened was in, in this book by, by uh, Evan uh, McConnell, he talks about how 24 members of F Company eventually made their way back to Reno Benteen Hill. Uh, Reno and Benteen uh, were out of the fight. They were caught in a different place. And these 24 guys from this company that was with Custer escaped. I don't know how. I don't know how far they got in. I don't know where they turned around. I don't know what happened. I know two of the guys claimed that their horses had given out and they couldn't follow the rest of the um, the regiment into the, the final stand area. And they made their way back to Reno and Benteen. The point here is I was able to go on the internet and within 15 minutes, I found a roster of everybody in the 7th Cavalry in June of 1876. So I could look at the disparities between the companies with Custer and the companies with the other officers. I learned, for example, that um, there were three majors, I guess, assigned to the 7th Cavalry. Two of them were not at the Little Bighorn. There were an additional four senior captains who were elsewhere. The commander of the 7th Cavalry, a guy named Sturgis, Colonel Sturgis, he wasn't with him. Custer was in charge. Um, the problem is I wanted to find out more about these guys. And, and by just a cursory search on the Internet, I was able to learn that. I learned that all five um, first sergeants with those companies riding with Custer had been killed in the battle. And they, the, the first sergeants normally carried the rosters of the men with them. So the exact rosters of who was present for duty on the morning of June 25th were lost when those five five men were killed at the Little Bighorn. The other the other first sergeants, of course, had had their rosters. The point simply is, I was able to get that information. I still haven't finished the research because I want to know how those other 24 guys got out and what they said when they showed up. Uh, and it was discovered that Custer and the other five companies had been annihilated. I was interested in what they had to say about how they, where they turned back, how they did not end up in the the final final stand. There was also a an axe murder in Iowa, in Villasca, Iowa, in 1912. This big axe murder has been a big deal. You, you can research it on the Internet. I found a book um, called The Man from the Train. And what this guy had done is he was interested in those Iowa axe murders, and he hired his daughter, basically, to research newspapers from that from that era around the country and discover there was a whole series of axe murders at that time that nobody ever put it together because you have uh, five people killed in an axe murder in West Virginia and another five killed in Illinois and another five in Iowa. Nobody puts it all together. And so he's talking about... Um, a, a, a serial killer back in then that, that nobody thought in those terms. The point is not that um, uh, we're not about axe murders or Company F from, from the 7th Cavalry Regiment. The point is with the Internet, we are able to do that kind of research while sitting at home. You do not have to visit all these places to get that information. Uh, you could... You, you could have gone to the, the, the museum at the Little Bighorn and gathered information. You could have uh, checked, uh, visited with the, the, the Lakota and gotten their, I guess, oral, oral histories of the battle and all of that sort of thing. But by sitting at home, I was able to discover the, the, um, 
roster of the 7th Cavalry, this fellow was able to put together a string of other axe murders that took place in 1910, 1911, 1912, and actually was able to identify the person responsible for it based on the internet. My point here is I'm reading these books that people write about UFOs, and they haven't done that sort of thing. I uh, was putting together a crash when UFOs fall from the sky, and there's a guy named Willingham who talked about a crash near Del Rio, Texas. And while I was putting the book together, I said, gee, I'm going to see what happened, what other information I can find about this guy. I went on the Internet and found all kinds of information and led me to the conclusion that the guy was not a colonel in the Air Force, as he claimed. His affidavit was complete but bogus. Everybody believed it because he claimed to be an Air Force colonel, and nobody had bothered to check it out. So I finally got, uh, got his records and discovered that... Uh, he wasn't an Air Force officer. He'd never been in the Air Force. He'd spent 13 days, 13 days, 13 months in the military, in the Army, technically was a veteran of World War II because he joined in December of 1945, and the war wasn't officially declared over until the middle of 1946, so he was technically a veteran of World War II. The point simply is, with the, in today's environment, there's no excuse for those kind of mistakes being made. We should be able to check things out, and we all make mistakes, and I understand that, but there's so much available that you should be able to do it. And I'm, I'm running long here and I know it. So I'm going to I'm going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about some of the nonsense about changing UAPs or UFOs to UAPs and rewriting history and that sort of thing. Uh, you're listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. My blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I will be back right after this. So please stick around. Turned. I have threatened to sing this segment, but I won't do it. I'm going to uh, change up the topics just a little bit and a couple of things that I think are important for us to understand. One of them is this, this idiotic idea that we're going to change UFOs to UAPs because UAP means unidentified aerial phenomena and UFO, which means unidentified flying object, has come to mean alien spacecraft, which is a I guess you could say that, but it's an, an unfair thing because as the skeptics point out and many of us in the UFO community point out, unidentified flying object means it's unidentified, not it's necessarily a spacecraft. Back in the 1970s, I think it was, not early, maybe, maybe as early as the late 1960s, Carl Lorenzen at the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization started using the term UAO, Unidentified Aerial Object. The objection to UFO was that flying implied some kind of technology, an object implied that there was some physical presence there. So unidentified flying objects suggested a uh, uh, its own, I guess, its own answer. And UAO, unidentified aerial object, took the aviation aspect of it, but still was talking about object. They Field has gone through many, many of these changes, and, and, and they're absolutely ludicrous. I know Don Schmidt and Stan Friedman and I took to calling the alien spacecraft flying saucers to get back to the origins, and clearly flying saucer means alien spacecraft. We didn't have to debate what we were talking about. We were talking about a flying saucer as opposed to a UFO. And I know the Air Force used the term UFO, uh, flying saucer to sort of denigrate the whole thing, saying things like, well, you don't believe in those flying saucers, do you? Well, yeah, maybe we do. 
But it's all about a rewriting of history, which is something they've been trying to do forever. Back in 1952, some of you will, <laughs> well, no, probably not many of you will remember. I know I don't remember uh, the, the, what we call the Washington National Sightings, a whole bunch of sightings over the uh, Washington, D.C. during July of 1952. It took place over two consecutive Saturday nights. Uh, the UFOs were attempted to be intercepted by jet fighters. There was air, uh, there was um, radar returns. There was visual sightings on the ground. There were airline air pilots seeing the things. And of course, the, the intercept by the um, military as well. An outgrowth of this was something called the Robertson Panel. And this was a uh, CIA-sponsored CIA panel in January of 1953 where um, five scientists supposedly got together to look to, 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 to study the UFOs, to study the, the information about it and determine if there was anything to it. I think uh, Michael Swords, who's done an awful lot of work in studying this, came to the conclusion that the panel was um, designed to debunk UFOs, that the final Robertson report was written prior to anybody really sitting down and discussing it. Uh, some of the people you would expect them to have talked to were really not uh, terribly involved in it. Ed Ruppelt, the, the chief of Project Blue Book at the time, Ed uh, Alan Hynek, who was the scientific consultant of Blue Book, they were there for like one day of it, um, didn't, didn't contribute much to it, that sort of thing. Um, and then Swords points out that uh, they, they end their discussions on a Friday afternoon and Saturday morning, Robertson's always got a rough draft of the, of the uh, report done. And he circulates it among them. There was very little change being done. And, and Swords said he couldn't believe somebody like Robertson would have sat down that night, Friday night, and batted this thing out and have it circulated. And a number of people already see it before they get to the, the final conclusions on, on Saturday. One of the things that they suggested, the Roberts panel suggested, was that they make an effort to debunk UFOs, which I think where the term debunker comes from, from UFOs. The idea was that if he could take the mystery out of it, then people would lose interest in UFOs. And that uh, they, they suggested that teachers not allow students to do reports on UFOs or read books about UFOs or discourage this sort of thing, kind of a way of um, influencing the youth of the nation not to be interested in UFOs. Uh, I might add it didn't work. But the point is it was an attempt to wind this thing down, get us out of touch with UFOs, get us away from UFOs. The Air Force continued with their investigation, but after the Robertson panel, the, the men brought in to run Project Blue Book, Unlike Ruppelt, who was pretty much, I think, a true skeptic, meaning he was not biased one way or another, he looked for answers, the men brought in afterwards were true debunkers. They had no time for UFOs and didn't believe that they were alien spacecraft and did everything in their power to destroy the investigation, turning Project Blue Book into a little more than a public relations attitude. And in the, the 50s and into the 60s, there was all kind of communications in the Air Force about uh, how to get rid of Project Blue Book, how to move it to the out of, out of ATIC, which is the Air Technical Intelligence Center, into the Public Affairs Office and that sort of thing. The upshot of all that was something called the Condon Committee, and that was Dr. Edwin Condon at the University of Colorado, 
being given eventually $550,000 to study UFOs. Once again, the conclusions were written prior to the study starting. There was something that well, we call the Hippler letter written by a Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hippler and it's to Dr. Robert Lowe of the Condon Committee. And the Hippler letter says, you know, here's what we'd like you to find. Uh, there's no national security implications. The Air Force has done a good job, and uh, there's nothing more to be learned by studying UFOs. In the end, that's exactly what they found, even though in one of the cases that the, they were looking at, which is the Belt Montana sightings from, uh, I believe, 1967, Belt Montana was Maelstrom Air Force Base, and that was the place where the missile flight was shut down by an outside force. This becomes a matter of national security. When the Condon Committee investigators showed up to look at the Belt Montana sightings as opposed to that, the UFO officer there was surprised that he knew about the missile shutdown and said, I can't talk to you. That's a matter of national security. Well, the national security implication is if the Soviets or other competitors in the world learned that our missiles could be disabled from outside, this is a matter of national security. So them determining there's no national, national security implications is completely and totally false. But the idea was that they would end the Air Force investigation, which they claimed to have done, but they didn't. They said there was no national security implications, which there were. And there were things of scientific value that could be learned because at one point they solved one of the cases by saying it was a natural, natural phenomenon so rare it had been never seen before or since. I would think that this would be an interesting area of scientific investigation to see what this phenomenon was and see if it had been seen other places, it's just not reported through the channels. So we have this history of, of I guess, an appeal to authority. The Robertson panel headed up by a group of scientists. Well, they should know what they're talking about. And if there's nothing to UFOs or they couldn't find anything, well, they would tell us. Unless, of course, there was some other implication involved. And the same thing with the Condon Committee. By the way, for those of you who'd like to see the Hippler letter, um, I've got a whole thing about it on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Just type Robert Hippler into the search engine and it'll bring that up. Um, as well, so you can take a look at that and see uh, what he said and what uh, Dr. Lowe said in response with the Condon Committee. In fact, Condon was at a meeting in Corning, New York, some 18 months before the end of the project and uh, told the assembled audience, the assembled scientists, well, there's really nothing to this UFO thing, but I'm not supposed to come to that conclusion for another 18 months. So you can see this was not a scientific project. It was something that was designed with a specific mission, and that's mission fail, of course. One of the things that bothered me about the Condon Committee is they didn't look into the level land UFO sightings. And I know you people have heard me talk about level land probably until you're sick of the term. But it's an important series of sightings. And the Condon Committee investigation was taking place nine and 10 years after the sightings of Level Land, but they never bothered with it. There's a single mention of Level Land in the Condon report, and they investigated a couple of cases where the witnesses had said their cars had been stalled by a close approach of the UFO. And in one of the cases, the woman's car, I think, was in very bad repair, and the problems with the car probably had nothing to do with their alleged UFO sighting. 
And uh, the other one, they said, well, the guy had some inconsistent information in his report. Well, stunning surprise. Anybody telling a story that they've lived through as opposed to a story that they've um, memorized will probably tell it in different ways each time. And and I, I've got an example uh, on my blog about this um, with some of my memories of, of, of um, Vietnam. And you take a look at um, www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com. And I tell the story of Thanksgiving in Vietnam, and and I, I examine on my other blog the um, how the memories were not accurate. I, I realized what it was based on a letter I'd written home right after the events. It wasn't that I was lying about it. I just had confused a couple of events. So the fact the stories were inconsistent is irrelevant. The point is, here was a story that demanded better work. Level Land is an important case. It demanded a, a better work. The Conduct Committee said, well, we could think of no mechanism where electromagnetic field, which is what they propose is why it's called an EM effect, electromagnetic effect, would stall a car engine. And once that field is removed, the car would start spontaneously. And I got looking at a report done by Mark Rodiger, Dr. Rodiger, the scientific director of the uh, J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. He'd done a big report in the mid-1980s about vehicle interference. And I went through that entire report looking for cases where people said the car started spontaneously. Very few say that. What they usually say is once the UFO was gone, the car started. Well, did it start spontaneously or did the driver do something to cause the car to start? And in going back and talking to some of the people involved in this and learning that, they did it. They started the car. So the magnetic field suppressed the, um, the engine stopped it from working, but once that field was removed, then they could restart the car. Very few talked about it being spontaneously. And that was kind of the impression everybody had um, up until I was taking a took a deep look at it, a deep deeper look at it, discovering that um, the drivers had started the cars, something that they could have explored, but they did not bother with doing it. And some of the witnesses, most of the witnesses, everybody would have been around in 1967, 10 years later, that I don't think anybody had really passed away who was directly involved in this because most of them were very young. And I say very young, from my point of view now, you know, 25, 30 years old or 40 years old, but they, they were around in 1967 and they could have interviewed the people and they could have gotten a, dare I say it, different perspective on that whole case. And I think it would have, it would have taken the investigation in a direction they didn't want to go based on what they were really supposed to do. So what we end up here is with a rewriting of the history of UFOs um, from governmental sources, what they want us to know and what they don't want us to know. If you, if you go back and you read the Project Blue Book files, which are available online now, you can, I think at um, Fold 3, you can look at them for free. But you go back and you look at it and you read some of the case reports, and you realize the conclusions don't make sense, but there was an answer involved. In level land, they say, well, it was ball lightning. Ball lightning is a very rare and sometimes disputed um, phenomenon. Some scientists still don't believe there's such a thing as ball lightning. It's very short-lived. It's usually something 18 inches, 24 inches in diameter. You don't get it popping up all over an area over a period for two hours. Uh, coming close to the ground, taking off, stalling car engines and all of that. So you look at the level land case, you read the case files, and uh, you say bold lightning simply doesn't work. You can see what was going on there. 
So we look at we look at that. We see how they're rewriting the history of the UFO phenomenon, how they're trying to change it from UFO to UAP. I guess to confuse us, uh, to to suggest something other than alien spacecraft when we talk about flying saucers. And I think that uh, that's one of the explanations we really truly have to look at when we're talking about uh, flying saucers. When we come back in the next segment, I'm going to talk about UFOs in the deep state, which is something that I would have done a little bit differently uh, if I'd written the book in today's environment and where we are where we are when I wrote the book uh, uh, some 12 months ago. Uh, we'll be back right after this. You're listening to a different perspective on the Exome Broadcast Network, and I'll be right back. So please stick around. Sitting in my palatial studio, <laughs> which means I'm sitting in front of my computer with a microphone, um, we've been talking about various aspects of UFOs, and I'm doing sort of a retrospective of things that have come up in the last a couple of years that we've done the program. And last year, I did a book called UFOs in the Deep State. It, uh, as they say in today's world, it dropped on May 1st, so it just came out. The idea was that um, to look at UFOs from a, a, a new way of looking at it and linking it into the deep state. Now, the deep state is an idea that came about, and I explore this in the book in the 19, 1920s, and I think it had to do with the shadow government in Turkey, where the, the, the people who were at the front were not really the people in charge there were other people, bureaucrats, who hang on forever. In in the uh, first election of Franklin Roosevelt, a lot of people were annoyed that he won the election. And they attempted to sort of subvert the election, the deep state sort of subverting the election. There was a general, Marine General um, Smed Smedley Butler. Wish he had a better first name. He would be the only person in history to have won three medals of honor. Had the Marines given medals of honor to um, officers when he uh, was was a, a lieutenant, he'd done something, and they didn't give him. He didn't. He didn't earn the medal of honor because generals didn't get it. Later on, the generals were eligible, and he and he was eventually awarded two. So he would have had three. So, I mean, here's a guy that had a great deal of military experience. He was well-respected. Um, the, I don't want to say, I, I think the American Legion, one of the veterans groups, um, very supportive of them. They had like five, five million members and this sort of thing. And the idea was these guys wanted to bring Butler into the White House's something more of, his, as a, of a chief of staff, something more than a chief of staff. And he would be running the country. He would be the man in charge. Uh, President Roosevelt would barely be a figurehead. He'd be the public face. To Butler's credit, and, and I look at this in depth in the book, to his credit, he said, I'm going to do that. It's just not right. And he kind of 
um, blew the whistle on these guys, uh, went to Congress, went to the newspapers and told it. And the newspapers in the Congress kind of buried the whole thing as they do when they don't want to hear the story or it's not what they want to believe politically. Um, so there's some question about whether it really happened. I, I believe it did. But the real point is what we what we learn about fr- from all of this is in the government, the way it operates today, we have bureaucrats who stay in their positions for decades. And when I say, you know, I would have done something different with UFOs in the deep state had uh, I'd written it this year with uh, the Biden presidency. And we see the guys I shouldn't say guys, seeing the people brought forward uh, from the Obama administration now filling positions again of power in the government, people from the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, these bureaucrats who live on forever, and they just circulate among positions of power in the government. And they control an awful lot what's going on. They are directing where it all goes. And I think that's something that we need to look at. And had I, as I said, had I done the book now, I would have I would have gone more into depth into the deep state and how it operates. And I mean, you can take a look at who is appointed to the positions, who's who's in the president's cabinet, who's who's in charge of the various other agencies around the country. Um, we can see the FBI manipulation of data um, trying to interfere with President Bush. Uh, I'm sorry, President Trump and um, President and in, in preventing him from taking the presidency. And then the four years of illegal activity by the FBI in an attempt to undermine the, the Trump administration. And I think anybody who looks at that is going to be very annoyed, very upset by these behind the scenes manipulations. The, the one thing that, that bothers me about all this is everybody knows Mark Felt was deep throat. He was the guy feeding the information of the Washington Post. He was a high ranking member of the FBI feeding information to Woodward and Bernstein. Good credit to Woodward and Bernstein for putting the story together. But the point is, here was an FBI guy who has decided he doesn't I guess he didn't like the way the president was operating. So he's feeding information that should have never gone to the newspapers to the newspapers. And it eventually brought down the Nixon presidency. Uh, and we had we had those attempts with um, I guess we had attempts, attempts with with Clinton toward the end of his presidency, trying to bring him down. And of course, the attempts in the at the end of the Trump administration with the same thing. So that's the deep state operating behind the scenes. Now. I think the point is, what what does the, the deep state want? What's the purpose of the deep state? They want power. It's all about power, because with power comes money, comes prestige, comes everything else, if you have the power. And I mentioned earlier in the program, I said I'd get back to this. What's, what's the big fear of UFOs? If they are alien spacecraft, it's obviously a technology far superior to ours. We cannot travel interstellar distances. It cannot be done. We know no no way of doing it. Doesn't mean it can't be done. It means we know no way of doing it. But the suggestion that it can be done, 
which suggest avenues of research that might not be taken. Because if, if you believe something's impossible, you don't bother to follow up. But if you think it's possible and there's evidence it's possible, then you might follow an avenue of research you wouldn't normally have followed. It's all about keeping the power and the national security. And we know there's a national security aspect to this because we have the Belt Montana Maelstrom Air Force bases where it directly affected an investigation. And the other side of this is people say, well, the president can break up this, this um, deep state. The president has the power to take away from all, to, to take, take the power away. And I looked at this in depth and I was talking to a fellow named Dan Sheehan. And those of you who are well-versed in the UFO field know who he is. He had been asked by President Carter to look into UFOs and get information about it for him. And what Sheehan told me, and I outline in this book, is President Carter had met with the, de uh, the dep deputy, the director of central intelligence. I kept fumbling between DCI and director of central intelligence, uh, George H.W. Bush. Now, this is before Carter was sworn in. He's the president-elect now. He's setting up his cabinet. He's doing the things that need to be done in the transition. And he goes to George H.W. Bush, and he says, tell me about UFOs. And Bush says to him, well, you know, after uh, you become president, after you're inaugurated, I'd like to stay on as director of central intelligence. And Carter says, well, I've got my own guy coming in. And then he says, what can you tell me about UFOs? And Bush says, I can't tell you anything about it. It's classified. You're not president yet. You can't know. So uh, you've got a guy who's not officially president but he is being told he cannot learn about UFOs by the director of central intelligence. Let's take this a step further. Now let's say Carter is the president and he follows up on this and he's got his own guy in there, whoever that guy might be. But the guy might be a member of the deep state or whomever. And he goes to his, his guy and he says, tell me about UFOs. And the answer is, let me get back to you, Mr. President, because I've got to pull in information from other agencies and other places, and we'll gather all this information and make a comprehensive report for you. And the president says, this is reasonable. And he says, okay. And that's, that's the end of it. You know, what's happening? Well, we're pulling the information together for you, Mr. President. And he never gets, gets the final answer, and then Carter's out, and nobody cares anymore. They can put it away. I think we're about to see the same thing again with this report that's supposed to come out in June, that the, uh, the deep state is gonna ma manipulate that so that there's gonna be many, many redacted sections and it's not going to be a full report. And they're gonna say, we're still pulling all the information together from all the various agencies and all the various arenas. So there are ways to dodge the question. There are ways to refuse the question and there is ways to keep the information hidden. And when people say, well, what's the motivation? Why do they care? I mentioned it before, it's all about retaining the power. If they can move the president in a different direction, and we go back to Carter, of course, we, we, we can see what happened in his administration to divert his attention, and we've got all kinds of crises going on. We can go back just to the, the last year of the Trump administration and, and the pandemic that began to spread through the world and how that would have taken precedence, did take precedence over everything that was going on. Um, we can look at the, the, the attacks uh, of 9-11, and how that changed the dynamic of the presidency and what was going on in the world. So there are ways to keep the power. And I'm not suggesting 9-11 was an operation of the deep state. I'm just saying that 
event changed the dynamic of what was going on in our government and allowed them to keep the secrets. Not that they organized it to keep the secret. I want to make want to make that distinction perfectly clear here. But what we end up with is that sort of thing. Now, in the book, there's another segment where we start talking about um, alien abduction. And, and those of you who have been around more than more than a week know that I'm not a fan of alien abduction, but there are some cases that are interesting. And one of them was the Terry Loveless case. And again, he is, uh, I interviewed him and, and you can find his, his interview, but he talked about being interviewed, um, regressed, debriefed by the Air Force Office of Special, Intelli Special Investigation, mm -hmm. which I found significant because when we look at the Rendlesham Forest case, every one of those guys involved in that, and I shouldn't say guys, every one of the Air Force personnel involved in this, with one exception, was regressed by somebody who came in on a CIA plane. Um, and the Air Force OSI was deeply involved because it, the, the interviews took place in the uh, Office of Special Investigation building on um, the airbase there in, in England. But with the point be, being is we've got the OSI involved in suppressing the information, um, talking to Jim Penniston from Rendlesham Forest, John Burroughs from Rendlesham Forest, and a number of other people from Rendlesham Forest. It's clear that all those guys were involved in uh, hypnotic and chemical regressions on the base. Uh, Terry Loveless talks about being involved in hypnotic and chemical regressions at his base after his abduction experience. And so we see a um, deep interest by AFOSI in UFOs and by extension, um, alien abductions. The only person at Rendlesham Forest who says he wasn't chemically or hypnotically regressed is Charles Holt. And again, he's been on the program, as have Penniston, as have Bur Burroughs, talking about those experiences. And Holt says that he was not regressed. I'm not sure that he's accurate. I, I don't want to say he's lying about it. He may may believe he wasn't involved in any of the regression, regressions, but I think he probably was. So we, but that's my opinion, not based on anything he said, but everybody else was. So we have good evidence of something operating in the shadows, operating in the background, manipulating the data about UFOs, manipulating the data about alien abductions, whether or not they're actually alien or something else going on, uh, manipulating that data. And we see with the new administration coming in here in the United States, how the people who were involved uh, in, in previous administrations are still involved in administrations here. So we don't know what kind of things they've learned. I will note here that an awful lot of the people involved in their positions of power in the, uh, in the United States. As I say, I look at all of this at, uh, in depth in UFOs in the deep state, and you can read my sources, you can read about where the information came from and get an idea. Uh, about about that book. There's other information available about this and UFOs, of course, always at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. As I said, we now have a embedded audio player there. So all the programs that I have done here on the Exxon Broadcast Network are available for you to listen to uh, by just scrolling down the list on that uh, embedded player and you can find, I'm sure, something that'll interest you that we've talked about in the past. I will be back next week, I hope, with uh, Don Schmidt, and we'll be talking about the current state of ufology. I appreciate you listening, 
and i will, as i say, i'll be back in about one hundred and sixty seven hours. thanks for tuning in.